0: This is the Stuck Mike Abcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly.
1: Episode 23, an interview with a NASA contract engineer about the space race, Apollo Moon program, and radio controlled aircraft coming up now on this edition of the Stuck
0: Mike Abcast. Now, here are your co-hosts: Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 23 of the Stuck My Dabcast. I'm your host Len Costa and joining me on the show today are the usual group of aviation rubberneckers and Carl, how's it going today?
2: Aviation rubberneckers, oh my gosh, I must mean I'm looking out the window. Uh, I am doing wonderful. uh, I'm here in Bucolic, Basking Ridge, New Jersey, but it's cold out. Wow. What is Bucolic? Uh, Well, it's just, it's serene, it's quiet and I'm watching Uh, the deer eat.
1: So you're telling me you just used a fancy word that I don't know about?
2: No, I just looked it up. Oh. But uh, Yeah, it's a wonderful little town. It's, it's quiet, quaint, and uh, not much going on here. It's right down the road from where the airport used to be, though. Oh, cool. So, yeah, and I'm looking at my little pictures of airplanes right now. Yeah, <clears throat> there's your, motor, your morning my motivation. motivation. He's in his happy place. I'm a happy place. <laughs> uh,
1: wonderful. Also joining us today is Victoria Neuville. How are you doing today, Victoria?
3: I am doing good. Um, flew up to Michigan yesterday, just an hour north of Detroit, and recording from my parents' basement.
1: Fantastic. And uh, Rick Felty, where yes, are you in the world today, my friend? I am,
4: today I am outside of Boston, and uh, it's a beautiful day here. Definitely chilly for this time of year, but uh, we'll take it. It's a pr- pretty day. <laughs>
1: Wonderful, and I'm your host, Len Costa, and I am recording live today from the beautiful streets of San Francisco. I'm actually sitting in a beanbag chair right now, nice and comfortable.
2: How appropriate. So
1: uh, if I fall asleep and you don't hear me too much on the show, that's probably what happened. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But welcome, everybody, welcome. Uh, Two quick short announcements before we get the show started today, and then we have a really cool guest that we'll we'll be speaking to.
0: Let's do the pre-flight.
1: Uh, The first announcement is uh, like I mentioned in the last show if uh, folks are interested in picking up any of the Stuck Mike Avcast swag, t shirts, coffee mugs, any of that stuff, visit stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash buy. The other announcement being that uh, the, you know, once again, the show is a listener supported show and we we love donations. It helps pay for the bandwidth and the file uh, hosting and stuff. If you're interested in sending us a couple of bucks, uh, you know, a tip out of appreciation or anything like that, you can go to stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash support. So now that we got the important stuff out of the way, let's, uh, we, we have, again, like I said, a very cool guest on the show today, a uh, family member of Victoria's, in fact. So uh, I'm going to hand the show over to Victoria and she can introduce us to her awesome guest.
0: Now entering cruise flight.
3: Well, thank you, Len. Um, we're here today recording in my basement, as I said before, with my grandfather, Harlan Newville, who actually played a very integral role in all of the Apollo missions. Um, he's one of the reasons why I wanted to fly. So, um, Grandpa, welcome. Yes, thank you. You guys can all call him Harlan. I apologize if I call him Grandpa throughout the recording. Well, that's, a, that's cool. <laughs> no problem. Um, first off, I'd like to start out with how um, the space race came to be and how you got involved.
5: Uh, well, it, um, it started out with uh, the ICBM kind of a standoff between us and the Russians, where we were both building uh, inertial missiles, and uh, um, we were getting kind of like tied up with this thing. And somebody thought uh, the Russians started launching uh, astronauts into Earth orbit. Before we did, and so that got us uh, kind of interested in putting man in space, and so we started adapting our um, launch vehicles for for missiles to putting men up there. And the Russians were way ahead of us, and they demonstrated that when they launched uh, Sputnik in uh, 1957. So 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 you you'd. you'd uh, You'd step out on your back porch in the evening hours when you can see this thing and you'd see Sputniks uh, orbiting overhead, mm. uh, giving out little squeals, which just frightened uh, everybody. You could actually yeah. hear it? Yeah. Oh. Well, well it broadcast. It was oh, broadcast. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Uh-huh. So, so d- that got everybody excited. Wow.
4: I bet. Can I ask a quick question just about that little bit right there? Yep. Not just Sputnik, but the that period. We're... We're, we were focusing on, on what we were focused on. Did some of these steps by the Russians take us by surprise? Like, was that, or were, no, did we kind uh, of know, we, kinda know we, had, we had missed a boat all of a sudden and we're trying to
5: catch yeah. up? No, we knew about, uh, after World War II, um, we took half of their scientists, including Von Brown, into mm-hmm. captivity, and they took the other half. Mm. And everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing, but <laughs> you didn't know how far you went until you saw something overhead.
4: Right. Way less, way less, until those satellites are up there, which they are now, way less ability to know what's going on. Right. Interesting. Okay.
5: And then the thing that frightened us was they would launch satellites that weighed 1,000 pounds uh, and ours would weigh a couple of hundred. Right. And that demonstrated right away that we didn't have the boosters to do other kinds of things.
4: Got it. Okay, I'll let you go ahead. That's all fascinating. Go ahead.
5: Oh, okay. Well, then... um, Kennedy knew uh, that we were kind of losing the race to Earth orbit based on the fact that they had men in space before us and they were thousands of pounds and we were not. And so uh, he sent Johnson off to look for something else to beat them with and nobody had technology for getting to the moon. Right, right. So Jack says we're going to the moon. And right, as a, a
4: way—go ahead.
5: Not only that, we're going to return them safely to Earth. Mm. And that was a remark made on behalf of our uh, contemporaries, you know?
4: Yeah, yeah. So, so that was an attempt. So by putting that flag out there of the moon, it was because there were other things we knew we were going to lose to. So, you know, Gagarin was like—somebody like Gagarin was going to get up there first to orbit. And right. we weren't going to beat him for that. But we needed a target that we, that right. we could put, beat him for. Wow. And that's a huge jump from— yep. Where we were to where we had to get,
5: and we knew for sure that nobody had a booster that could get men to the moon. They didn't, and we did. They had bigger ones when it came to warheads and Earth satellites hmm. than us. Uh, but nobody had uh, something big enough to launch uh, a men on way to the moon. So he picked that,
4: right? Huge.
5: And hmm. then it, he made that remark too that and return him safely to Earth. Right,
4: which is adds another level to the complexity
5: of the. That's right, absolutely right.
4: Because everything you add in that you have to get up there
5: to get you, you, back,
4: you back, you have to lift at yep. the beginning,
5: right? Right, right. Wow. Now, so was there
4: did talk? You guys, so did you hear that? Did you hear that speech and say, "We shocked," or was it like, were, did, "Could you conceive that that would be possible in that timeline?"
5: Um, was it, it little, kind of fit in. Uh-huh. You know, they had beaten us to orbit, and they were showing off their big. Uh, manned uh, vehicles in Earth orbit. And so it, it was kind of like, yeah, that's right. We should do that.
2: Cool. That's great. So was but there still. talk at the time of, of them sending something other than a man to the moon before this statement was made? <clears throat> that,
5: oh, yeah. There were um, lots of efforts to put unmanned stuff into moon orbit and into our solar system. So everybody was doing that. But the point was, is that uh, if you had boosters big enough to deliver all those, uh, mist, those atomic uh, bombs, uh, you, you, you would have the edge. And so it was kind of like a space race as to who was the biggest and the fastest. And that's simply, simply what, and that demonstrated then who had the better technology and hence who you know it was better or whatever.
4: Yeah, dominant, world dominant.
5: Yes, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> and so the moon was uh <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. The moon was just something no one had any hardware or theory at the at the moment uh to get there and back.
4: Right. Can I ask you a question uh related to this time period so it's early still? Yeah. Um the reason and, and my question's going to be about computing power. Is a little side <laughs> thing, to me. but I don't know I don't know if this is relevant, but my, only because my connection to any of this is that my dad was an uh, electrical engineer, and, and we ended up living in South Florida, and he was very aware of what was happening to get to the moon, what was happening to do all this stuff. And um, my understanding from him was that back in the 50s, you know, I think when he started in, in his career, there <clears throat> were still vacuum tube computers, or certainly he was aware of them, right? Solid state. I don't know when that no, came they, in. They were,
5: they were just getting into transistors.
4: Transistors, right.
5: So and, uh, yeah, and he, we,
4: he, his comment to me—I'll just throw this out there—and then you can talk about it, is um, that the that, that, they, that they had to improve precision of computing to even make the thing possible. Does that sound? Does that ring a bell?
5: Um, I, I I can't comment on that. What I knew was that we had to keep it light, ah. and it had it was uh, virtually in straight binary, mm-hmm. and that uh, we had just found out about transistors. <laughs> so we were making uh, AND gates and OR gates out of transistor technology, and that seemed to be light enough for. I see. We, we only we only allowed thirty uh, two K words in the entire computer. Wow! And, uh, and and of course the mission requirements grew and grew and grew. Mm. And uh, MIT, I, I was working at MIT. They had to at a re, reprogram everything. Very often, just to get it all squeezed in there,
4: right? So to go back, I just just to go back to the where we were. You're you're working for a company dealing with launching of you know missiles to put warheads up. You know, and 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 now you're there's a new mission. Is that what happens?
5: Yeah, that's what that's what happened. We were working on Titan, and we were working on an ICBM and an inertial guidance system, which enables you to fly around in, in inertial space and that inertial guidance system was invented by draper labs MIT and we were hand in hand with them building that thing for the titan ICBM and so they decided to bid on Apollo using an adaptation of that system so we kinda had it built before we started right and and, and there's all kinds of comments about uh, uh, efforts to save weight how uh, How we we uh, put onto the system? It had to have a lot of man rating and a lot of man handling. It wasn't that automatic in order to save uh, the weight of fabrication.
4: I see. We're talking. Ultimately, we're talking Apollo as the goal to get to the moon. But there were several human. You know, there was Mercury and Gemini to get there. Were you involved in those?
5: Uh, Yeah. Uh they, that's how they started. They started out with Mercury, a single man, because we had a booster that could get that thing up there. I see. And That was a that was a military, I think that was the uh Atlas. And then uh the, the two-man spacecraft, which was Gemini, uh, that could be launched by Titan. And we were working on Titan. So it's all kind of fit together that we were working on a guidance system anyway. And we had it covered as to a vehicle that could take two men into Earth orbit. And so the government said, "Well, why don't you you and MIT go together and get us to uh, the moon?"
4: Wow. And different people were making components, and I've read uh, your com- you've discussed this in different. I think I saw some online articles. Obviously, this this project was big enough that all sorts of different companies had to be involved to pull it together. So I, that must have been fascinating because with there's one goal and 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 weight limits based on certain realities. Right. So everybody has to cooperate with, you know, how much right. is your land, how much is your land are going to be? You know, how heavy is that thing? And,
5: and, yes. You know. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 400,000 people worked on this project. Wow. Wow. And,
4: uh. So you, so, well, I don't want to jump ahead too far. There are, clearly were a number of first moments that were probably a little nail biting. They all, <laughs> you know. I mean, ultimately, uh, the last yeah. few Apollos probably after, you know, got a little more, we knew what we were doing, maybe. But early on, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, the Gemini program that you said you were working on with that, with that booster. Th- there must have been stuff there that was like, wow, we've never done this before. And then, you know, tense moments. Like, I don't know if you want to talk about those.
5: Well, I just soon uh, stick to Apollo because we can get okay. a, a lot of detail on uh, Gemini. That's cool. Yeah.
4: So Apollo, I mean, but the same thing, <clears throat> obviously there were, now, were you, had you at this point, are we working with Na- for for NASA, as Apollo really was going, like around yeah, Apollo? Yeah, I
5: was contracted to MIT Draper Lab for three years, and then with NASA for the rest of the uh, missions. Right. And, uh, and, and I wound up in uh, Houston supporting uh, the missions. And, but, but I actually worked for Delco Electronics, which built the inertial guidance system. They just rented me out you know to to MIT and to uh, NASA so I was really working for them on equipment built by the parent company Delco Electronics but you're right there were 400,000 people working on this thing uh, full-time or over time
2: just one other uh, 400,000 people you said over the
5: year over a period of eight years yes
2: Wow the um, now these 400,000 people, are they in, var- I know, various locations. You just mentioned Houston, and I only know one other person that is, uh, they were over in, in, <clears throat> in, I guess it was Cape Canaveral working on boosters. Now, do you know how many were subcontractors and actual employees of NASA? Um, I w- let me guess. Um, for, for the uh, Apollo
5: contract, it might have been 10 altogether. In uh, testing facilities, etc, And then the rest of us were uh, contracted to uh, NASA to get what we were doing done. And uh, 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 it, it was an amazing demonstration of what this country can do.
2: Yes it is. It's just just phenomenal what these folks did. Mm. And uh you know, the, and a lot of people don't realize at the time uh you know the communication efforts that were involved too. I mean, how did how did you you know, nowadays we have computers, right? Yep. Then and you can communicate within seconds. How did you talk to say some engineer in Florida and you're you're in Houston and then another person up up in wherever they may be in Connecticut say? Um let's see. I think We broke it down into subsystems in which you could, uh, at
5: your location with your team, build an entire subsystem. And then uh, they were all integrated at the Cape in in an uh, all-up test site. So I don't know how we did it. (laughs) Magic. (laughs) I was too busy working to worry
2: about it. yeah, right. but yeah wow that that must have been you know one large you know communication system to have all you you know a big right now it's it 's easy i mean here we are we're, we have these technologies we 're talking together on Skype, and for you to be able to, to have that communication yeah. it 's just phenomenal and uh but you know the, it 's uh you know we talked about the four hundred thousand people and and then moving on from that the different challenges with the Apollo program first, there was eleven and then Apollo thirteen. Um, right. And that brought about some interesting challenges there. Um, what was unique between, you know, from 11 to Apollo 13? How would you compare the two? Well, we had as much excitement, uh,
5: well we had more excitement on 13 obviously, but we had uh, enough of it on every mission to keep everybody uh, awake. Uh, on uh, On 11, while landing, we had uh, problems with uh, getting the, the system to accept landing radar, and we had what we call a 1202 alarm. You can hear that on the transcripts, which says uh, the, the system might like to abort the landing. But then on 13, uh, we blew everything. We, we blew the uh, fuel cells off, off the line, and we had no power in the command module, so that was a question of just getting them back, you know. But everything was rather scary. Let me see, let me
2: see that. <laughs> to to say the least, gosh. Now, did you at the time? Now, where were you during this this whole incident with the Apollo thirteen? Where you know that that must people must have been hanging on their seats uh, just for days. <clears throat> and if you could just review, how many days was that? I mean, was it five, four? Oh well. Uh- the, the, actual, the actual mission, we were,
5: we were really stuck out there five days or so, but uh, I was there for two weeks. And uh, we were all in Houston at the time. Our job was to go to Houston and support the mission and mission control. And uh, I had uh, five, eight people who were called the boys in the back room. And they had councils and they had equipment and they had to answer all the questions regarding our system when they came up in real time. So that was the excitement of uh, 13 because nothing worked.
2: Wow. Now explain to us what, what <clears throat> was the biggest challenge there. They, for instance, they, um, I, the only things I remember from that is that they had to uh, recycle something, and I can't remember what that was, and then they were able to, to get them, and they were afraid they weren't going to be able to get them back. And uh, Oh, you're was... talking about 13? Yeah, 13. Yeah,
5: they were too far out to turn around, so they had to go around the moon to get back.
2: Oh, my gosh. And um,
5: let's see, they lost their fuel cell, so they had no power in the command module, so they had to go to the batteries in the LEM, but the LEM was only designed for two people, and there were three on the crew, <clears throat> and so three people had to live in a place of two for a couple of days, uh, getting themselves back here uh, like they did. And uh, it was just one thing after another, continuously fixing things and and rerouting navigation stuff and, you know, getting it all done. And luck, and
3: luck. Well, Uh, um, speaking of luck, you had mentioned before that the sun heated up part of the the shuttle that helped make it come back.
5: Oh, we call that the, excuse me, we call that the barbecue mode in (laughs) which you had to rotate the entire stack slowly exposed to the sun so that it would heat up and keep keep the crew uh, and the insides of the, of the thing warm. But what it did to the command module which had no power was it froze all the water on the control panels and uh, uh, we, we weren't sure that all that stuff would come back when we powered up and, and power up would be too late because we'd be in entry at the time so that was kind of a hairy thing to live with.
2: <clears throat> well, the uh, now explain a little bit the, as far as the um, the module itself. You, I know you had been involved in some of the navigation and, and that type of thing, but um, they actually, were they able to, how did they breathe? I mean, what what did they actually do to breathe when, during this, this portion? Because it sounds like if the machinery is down or they're having problems with power, don't they have to... Use we it. we, 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 the atmosphere they lived in was pure
5: oxygen, so we only need, as I recall, a pressure of uh, three pounds per square inch instead of 14 like you have to have when you're here. Right. And so, uh, so we found out that, and that's one reason why we took pure oxygen, because it was uh, so much less pressure to maintain inside the spacecraft that uh, it saved a lot on weight and things. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so both of them uh, had uh, uh, oxygen, uh, but the biggest problem was battery power. Uh, we lost the fuel cells, and so we were down to lead-acid batteries or whatever chemical batteries they used. And we had a ration that, ration that very strictly because we had to have enough left to get through the entry phase. And that was what the... Uh, uh, that's why we start shutting everything down, all the guidance stuff, all the lights, uh, all the heat, and that's that. Uh, and that's where the barbecue uh, motion kind of helped out because we rotated in the sun's uh, in the in the sunlight, and that kind of kept them warm enough to get in. And wow. it was just touch and go all the way
2: down. Did you ever get to talk to the astronauts afterwards <clears throat> to ask them about Well, the
5: they, they would talk to groups of us in uh, debriefing sessions as to what our particular systems did. And, uh, I, and, and also the, uh, cr- the crews of Apollo would sit uh, in mission control with uh, myself and my people and help out. As a matter of fact, uh, mission control Capcom was another astronaut and another astronaut from the backup crew of the mission that was flying. So so they were you, you could unless you knew them, you could hardly tell they were there because they dressed like we did, you know, pocket protector the whole bit. <laughs> he
3: has a picture of him with the pocket protector. We'll have to yes. share it. <laughs> <laughs>
5: They're
2: all aviation geeks also, or geeks yeah. just in general, but Yep. Wow. And then these people that now let's go back to that Capcom. I guess the, the Capcom. What, what is that again? Do you? Remember? Well, they had an extraordinary
5: organization at NASA to communicate with the spacecraft. First place, there's only one guy allowed to talk to the crew, and that was a a uh, astronaut himself, or another crewman, or someone who had been on the simulations with them. So the one guy talks to them, but there's uh, you know a couple of hundred of us giving advice. And so the mission controller, the guy running the mocha room, was the one that was in command of all of us, would demand would 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 require information. And then he would try to paraphrase it. And then Capcom, who was a, an astronaut who had worked with the crew as their backup crew, knew them personally, and they could tell by voice inflictions and and their language exactly what they were trying to communicate. It was absolutely a unique way of emergency communications.
3: So the astronauts really had to know each other and understand Oh yeah. yeah. They so. would
5: they would go into simulations uh th- there's three of them of course and uh, they would they would simulate the missions in the actual spacecraft and the backup crew and the primary crew were right there uh together many times and they knew each other very well. And so a capcom was always someone who spoke their language. And,
4: and those backup yeah. simulations that they were able to run really came in, it was crucial for 13, right? Yes. Because you actually were able to troubleshoot the problem because they were there to run it through. Well, they had
5: already, yes, you're you're essentially right there. Before the mission left, we simulated a lot of disasters in real time with uh, Capcom and the crew. And so we practiced this over and over and over again together. And we would, and, and the simulators would put in false emergencies and we would have to work them out. And they would do that for months before the, before the mission. Wow. So, so but, but we never, I, I don't remember, maybe others do, but I don't remember ever accurately predicting what would happen. It was always something else. Right. But uh, we, we gained a lot from the experience of doing these simulations.
4: Um, you know, in later missions, I know, <clears throat> projects and things were added. You know, different experiments yeah. on the surface and ultimately like the big one I think was the was the dune you know, the dune buggy or the car.
5: The Lunar
1: Rover. Yeah.
4: Lunar Rover and that and that there's you know talk about I'm sure some weight there. So did did the dynamics of the launch change over the period of Apollo from the first one to the last one in terms of weight lifted or did you save weight from somewhere else?
5: No, we got we got well, a lot of things, a lot of things happened. We, first, we got bolder about uh, uh, taking more stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And uh, we were more confident that it would work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, uh, and the, the prime contractors were improving the spacecraft as they went along. So everybody got better and better and better. And they could push the margins a, a little more. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the thing that the geologists wanted us to do was to go further out from Where the lem landed, mm-hmm. and the only way you could do that was with a, a lem rover, and so we just simply made room for it and tacked it onto the bottom of the landing craft wow. you,
3: know? you said with that they were able to go four miles out was it three,
5: miles, three miles four miles, miles yeah yeah
2: now those geologists you had mentioned they what, what were they doing? why did they want them on board, and what was their mission
5: well, they actually um uh, I might not have this exactly right, but they actually uh, trained a geologist to be an astronaut. So he was an astronaut. He was a geologist first, and then he was the Lem module pilot when, when they landed. And that plus the fact that the crews of Apollo along with management would go on these geology tours oh, and cool. dig into this stuff for real. And so, I I think they did the best job you could do, uh, knowing that the complexity of the mission required a test pilot and a fighter pilot background, Uh, getting a a real honest-to-goodness geologist up there on the moon with a hammer, you know, that was cool. Wow. (laughs) (laughs)
2: These are pretty sharp people, I guess. They They
5: all were. Uh, The geologists had their own back room at Mission Control, and so... Uh, during the EVAs, the geologists kind of took uh, command of uh, Capcom and would talk to the crew as a geologist would, not another, uh, astronaut, not another pilot, excuse me, something like that. So, so they, they made a, a, as good an effort as you can with the complexity of that machine to get a real honest-to-goodness geologist on the surface of the moon. Wow.
4: Yeah, and, and factoring in the fact that a certain amount of weight had to come back, too. Well, because yes. you, lost, you lost weight going, so you probably had a lot of room coming back.
5: Yeah, right. Rel- you were rel- dumping fuel all the way out, you know, right. getting down and that kind of stuff, and we replaced it with rocks.
4: <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. But, um, I,
3: go, go ahead. Uh, speaking of the moon's surface, you said they were worried about when they were landing that the dust would dust. go all over, but it was different than expected, correct?
5: yeah the dust on the moon is not like dust on earth because there's no air on earth to give it turbulence and so dust would shoot uh straight out like you'd almost laid a uh kind of a fancy looking carpet out and therefore it would obscure the surface uh, of the moon at the most crucial moment and that was when they were getting ready to touch down so so but they all managed to live with it uh, uh but uh, yeah everything was different up there I think the thing that you should yeah, uh, most readily uh, noticed was that while your weight was different on the moon, your momentum was not. So I want you to imagine throwing a bowling ball that weighs a pound, and you would, and on Earth here you would expect to follow through, feel the momentum as a one-pound bowling ball, but it would be like an eight-pound bowling ball instead. And so this is why there was some some kind of. Uh, Learning curve as to how to walk on the moon because your momentum is there, there is the same as here, here on Earth, so,
3: so they were kind of tripping, and yeah,
5: falling. Yep, <laughs>
2: yep.
3: Wow, that's fascinating.
2: So there's really no air resistance or anything like that up there. Nowhere, no, so no, you, you, right. you just keep on going. And, and going. the
5: gravity is considerably less. I forget what it was, something like an eighth or uh, considerably less than on Earth. So you weigh less. And so your 200-pound your backpack, you know, uh, would weigh 30 pounds or 40 pounds like that. And, uh, and so you'd kind of feel it, and you'd expect your momentum, the, the ability to start and stop, would kind of match how the weight you feel. But that wasn't true because the momentum was the same as it was on Earth. And so it was hard to stand up. It was hard. It was easy to fall down. Right. And, uh, and 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 I don't remember anybody walking. They were all kind of loping. Bouncing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they, and I they learned, learned very quickly to to deal with it.
4: You know? I mean, obviously, I guess that makes sense now too. As I think about it, they trained in in water in water tanks, right, for the weightlessness to some degree. That's right. Get, but, but that would not transfer the actual reality of the momentum difference.
5: Right, right. So,
4: so, you, so you would have learned a certain thing about the weight, but, yeah. but mislearned about the momentum. Yeah, you'd easily,
5: you could easily learn about the weight. Oh, things weigh less here. Yeah. And then your mind would say, okay, there must be less momentum. Interesting. Kind of automatic. And then when you start moving, you couldn't stop because <laughs> your momentum was the same as it was on Earth with a 200-pound backpack. Wow. And, and so you'll notice that they don't, they, they kind of loped, some of them loped along, some of them kind of jumped a little bit. Right. They all learned to cope with this very quickly, but many of them fell
2: Right.
5: And had, to, had, to, had, to, had to get up. And, but that was principally, in, in my view, why, why they fell.
2: Wow. I wonder how hard it was to get up after they fell down.
5: Well, if you look at movies of 17, you can see it was hard.
2: Uh-huh.
5: And, but, but they coped with it magnificently. I mean, man, I'd have panicked. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that i didn't mean to say that yeah any, but <laughs> no no no
4: i i agree i, I could see why you would it because those look fairly stiff those suits
5: yes they were and you didn't want to puncture them with anything you know
2: right right now get you know just going back to this the surface there and walking i was just thinking about the dust and then i realized well how did the lunar module actually touch down It they. They did this using navigation systems, or by feel or touch, because then all that dust is flying around.
5: Yeah, they, you- they, they. We went in. They went in automatically under the guidance of uh, uh, the inertial guidance system, which was uh, built built at MIT, and um, and and down. It was it was a hairy deal, but down to about five hundred feet, it'd be mostly automatic. And then uh, it was up to the commander of the Lamb to decide whether or not to let it go all the way down or to grab control. And as I recall, most of them would grab control around two, 300 feet uh, and, and do the best. To, having selected a place with no rocks and no holes, hopefully they would just trust that below that dust that was blowing was a flat surface. And then we had a, a probe on the landing gear that probed, I think it was five feet in length, that would automatically warn the crew that they were on the verge of shutdown and they better shut that engine off, that kind of stuff. So, so it was a combination.
2: So they kind of felt their way down at some point, The little kind probe. Kind of like, yes,
5: yes, <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh-huh,
2: yes they did. Yeah.
4: I could use that on, uh, you know, uh, ra- round, round out and flare, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I'd love to have a five-foot indicator to, to give me that last little bit of
5: precision. That's pretty cool. Yeah, give you a little lamp that says you're on the ground. Yeah, exactly.
2: Now, we in, in the airlines, uh, we use what's called radar altimeter. Did, they didn't have that at the time to just look straight down, I guess? Um, Is that why, let's see. Or too much
5: I'm weight, I'm not maybe? sure what kind of a radar it was, but because I was in, in the inertial guidance side of it. Uh, but it, but it, to me, it was just the reflecting kind that would sense a hard surface. Mm-hmm. And and so the radar was uh, accurate, fair, fairly accurate. Uh, many people worried that the moon would, might have been covered by six feet of dust, which would have been a disaster, you know, which wasn't true, of course. Right. And so uh, radar worked out uh, pretty well. And uh, it was used uh, as... Uh, uh, an indicator of when you got close to the ground, you didn't want to use inertial guidance anymore because that had to do with uh, Newton, and that doesn't get too accurate when you're in 40 feet of the ground or something like that. You know,
4: in terms in terms of inertial guidance, you know, the one thing we don't hear about any problems with, and, and you can tell me if that's true, is it seemed like um, docking, undocking, all the all the maneuvers that had to happen uh, from start to finish seemed to all work very well. Were there any close, you know, any challenges uh, there? you know cuz yeah, i know had, they had to separate the command module out and go back yeah. in to pull the lem out yeah you know and then and then on the back end the lem had to come back up and find the command yeah. module i mean it seemed seemed all good and clean from what i recall
5: well that's where skill came in because when you're flying in inertial space you don't you don't point the thing up to go up you point the thing in the direction you're going and just go faster uh-huh. and so to maneuver to dock when two, two spacecraft are supposed to intercept each other in an inertial orbit in free fall, it's <laughs> very, very tricky. Right. Uh, when they got close, I'm not sure, because I never flew any of them, uh, they could get the docking uh, hatches together by uh, kind of brute force, but they would waste fuel. Uh-huh. So they are always worried about wasting fuel by brute forcing Newton mechanics when they uh-huh. were within a couple of feet of each other. Wow. And, 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 but they, 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 uh, as a matter of fact, they were even competitive about who could use the least fuel docking because that was, that was proof that uh, they, you know, they had done their job better. Right. But the only docking problem we had, well, we had docking problems, but the major docking problem we had it was the latches. I, I think it was 14. Uh, the latches wouldn't latch the two together. And so they had a back away and bang in and back away and bang in a couple of oh. that. and that's kind of scary.
4: Yeah. Out there that's...
5: where there's no air. <laughs> in case you punch a hole in something, you know. But they did it.
4: Right. Wow. That's amazing.
3: Well, more on uh the guidance and the navigation. How about you tell them about that sextant you guys had to make um and how you use the stars versus oh, points okay. on earth yeah. to get around?
5: Both uh, let's see, both us and the Russians decided to put autonomous navigating on the spacecraft just in case there was, for some reason, interference with ground communication. And so both uh, systems, uh, ours and, and theirs, had to be able to do their own navigating, which means you had to have take a space sextant along. And so one of the things, one of the first things I worked on was a space sextant to uh, mount it to the spacecraft with a couple of eyepieces and you could, you could uh, do do like the Navy does, you know, take a star and superimpose it on another uh, object and by triangulation kind of figure out where you were. And so we had planned to use landmarks in a star, star, you know, Eiffel Tower, et cetera, like that as uh, an aid to navigating as to how far out from Earth we were. And we found out there was too much cloud cover to count on the availability of any particular landmark uh, to be there when we needed it. So we found, uh, I I didn't do this, but they found um, uh, where the atmosphere, when you're out there in inertial space and you're looking back at the Earth, the atmosphere changes uh, colors and hues. As you get closer and closer to the Earth, it gets deeper blues and violets and things like that. And so we effectively learned to navigate instead of with landmarks. We put a star on the rim of the Earth uh, Earth uh, atmosphere, and that worked fine. And then we got to the moon. There was no air, so we could do uh, a navigation out there with a the space section. But they had to be totally autonomous regarding their ability to navigate uh, to the moon and back. And then you know when you're traveling at a, uh, 30, 40,000 miles an hour, you can't make too many mistakes, you know.
2: <laughs> you know, when you say sexton, I started getting visions of the old explorers coming to America, and uh, I guess in the same way, they're they were using sextons to explore the moon, you know, this, right? This
0: the same thing,
5: same thing. As a matter of fact, we knew we used I, I forgot the name of the, the people who the um, the civilization that named the stars, but we were using their star. You know, wow. like Beetlejuice. You ever heard of Beetlejuice? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Ares, you know yeah. stuff like yeah. that. And yeah. it was the same navigation technique that was used uh, by the agents to get to get across an ocean.
4: That's pretty cool.
5: Wow. Yeah, I thought that was cool.
4: Yep. Yeah, the stuff stay. It's still true. <laughs>
5: yep. Yep. It's wow. still true. Right. The stars yeah. are really at infinity. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it persu- or near it, so. Right. Close enough that you could get to the moon. Yep.
3: Speaking Which of is, those, oh sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. All right. Um, speaking of the stars, um, you have a lot of people that don't believe we landed on the moon. True. Specifically, because in the pictures you can't see the stars. Right. Explain. Okay. That well, to them.
5: that's, that's, that's uh, anybody. You, you could explain that because <laughs> photography when we take pictures the Earth is so bright that it washes out all the stars. If you want a good image of the Earth. And vice versa for the stars. If you want a good image of the stars, you have to take the Earth out or be facing away. And so when you see our images, and I think you got you 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 know this as well as I, you don't see any Apollo images with the Earth shine or Earth and the Moon surface with any stars in the background. And uh, I I I speak on many occasions to people, and uh, some of them wonder at that if that's uh, you know kind of painted or not, and it's not. And you know this as well as I do. You know. <laughs>
2: Well, that's something I didn't know that people. Yeah, I didn't realize. I guess there was a group that didn't think that it actually happened, and I didn't realize you didn't see stars for in the back,
3: hanging from the astronauts and the moon. <laughs>
2: oh wow!
4: Yeah, there are. It's it's a thing, and it's 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 odd that people don't think it happened, but it's it's definitely yeah. out
5: there. You know, they have the right to their opinion. All I know is I worked sure. pretty hard for for nine years. Yeah,
4: on something. Yeah. Sure, fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Buzz Aldrin had a few things to say about some yes, of the people. Yes, yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Amazing man. <laughs> let me tell you. So when did you transition? You know, you tra- they transitioned from the moon and then back to the earth, and uh, then the Apollo program came to an end. Did you move into some other programs other than Apollo, or did? Uh, is, well, was that we
5: a- we went we bid on the space shuttle, but we lost the contract. So we oh. went back to uh, I went back to uh, robotics and machine vision. And machine intelligence kind of things, and so you, I used, uh, you know, s- somewhat all, all the science that, that I'd picked up to uh, do, doing Apollo. So it didn't go to waste, but it was certainly less fun. <laughs>
4: <laughs> was was the number of were the number of Apollo missions known from the beginning that it would end when it ended? Or no,
5: they had uh, they planned on twenty. Okay. They had boosters for 20 and maybe 21. I'm not sure. But they had boosters for 20. They were going to go to Apollo 20. And uh, the, the federal government and the country simply lost oh. interest. Yeah. And they were trying to get into a uh, shuttle. NASA wanted to do the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And so the last, uh, uh, the last mission was uh, 17. Okay. So 18, 19, and 20 were, were just uh, kind of scrapped. Right. Uh, they used some of the equipment for Skylab, which was a um, mm-hmm. early joint pre- issue with the Russian. Right, remember early that? precursor. Do you remember
4: that? Yeah. Well, I remember, yeah. it, I remember, it, I remember it, it famously, you know, falling back to Earth.
5: Yeah. Right? I mean, yep. that was
4: a big deal when that happened, too. But yeah, that, big was deal like, that, happened. Yep. that was like early space station stuff.
5: Yep, it of. was early space station stuff, yes.
2: Now, how about that? My earliest real recollection of NASA uh, is that Apollo, there was Apollo-Soyuz that came after Skylab, correct? Is that right? That's right. Okay. Oh, no, not after Skylab. No, oh,
5: excuse me. We went. We finished Apollo, and then we went to Skylab, where we joined uh, hands with the Russians in orbit, and so everybody was back friendly again. And then we went, then, then we went on to the space, space shuttle.
2: Oh, wow. So then after you, you, you transitioned from uh, this Skylab and over, excuse me, from this shuttle, or tried to bid on the shuttle and weren't able to get that bid, you went back to to working on in the commercial sector. Yes. Now, I know one thing that, you know, some of us are lucky enough to be inspired by a pilot or be inspired to fly because we're, oh, well, we maybe made model airplanes. Victoria was lucky enough to actually talk to you that has some experience with with the space program. I mean, what... What other motivation can you give a, a child? And to just hear the stories and say, "Hey, I want to go out and fly. I want to do that. I want to get involved in aviation and and astronautics." And and that's pretty incredible. Now we have a, a large aviation audience here, and these folks uh, would probably want to know: Do you do any type of flying? Are you into airplanes at all? Did you get into models? And uh, yeah,
5: I I, I have uh, more invested in. Than- model airplanes than i care to admit in public (laughs) (laughs) and uh right now i'm i'm uh i have several which are exact replicas of uh, world war one uh two biplanes you know and stuff like that wow so i've got a lot of that stuff around here which i i fly right and And you, you
4: and guys like you who can fly those things amaze me too because for part of the time you have to fly backwards
5: Yes, you do. You have to assume. That's right. You have. And to, I mean, I,
4: I've I've learned to fly a, 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 an actual plane, but I don't ever have to reverse my control inputs, which yeah, you, not, you have to do. Yeah, which well, I think I, is just impressive. You
5: know, no, 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 no offense, but the hardest people for me to teach to fly RC are pilots.
4: I bet. I bet.
5: Because they always want. They always turn their back towards the airplane when it's coming at them, <laughs> and look over their shoulder.
4: Totally, and and you totally can't get, do that because yeah. you lose
5: sight of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but was that but, hard?
4: Was that hard for you to learn, or since you learned? No, no,
5: learn I, uh, you know, some some things come easy. That that always came e- easy to me because uh, while I, I dabbled in being a pilot, I never really was, and so mm-hmm. I primarily learned how to do this RC stuff. You know?
2: Right. And they, you said you have World War One airplanes, like uh, yeah. What type yeah, of could, airplanes do you have? Um, now you see, I'm a little old to remember
5: the names. Uh, I got the. Um, what is that one back there? DR1 that,
2: one or no, I,
5: I've, the I've got The only thing th- I
3: can think of right now is like the Sopwith camel. <laughs> oh,
5: cool. <laughs> oh, I've got that triplane that the Germans had. That, the uh, What was his name? The, the red Baron. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah, the fucker. Mm-hmm.
5: The three wing, black. Right. It's black with the skull on it. And then I got that favorite plane of yours. The, the, the red, red one. The white, the yellow one.
3: Oh, the yellow one.
5: Don't you remember that?
3: We'll, we'll have to send someone into the basement to
5: go check out which. School. airplane it. is. Go find, right out, th- go find out, Bob. Go find out, Bob. We have someone running. <laughs> but, but right now, uh, uh, when you get older and better at this, you don't wreck as many. And so you accumulate them all over the place. Right. You know? right. And uh,
3: it's a Stinson.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. It's a gorgeous yellow Stinson Reliant. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Yes. You'd love it. <laughs> so, Her- weekend
3: mornings, you can catch Grandpa out flying them above our lake. And uh, he's actually part of a club. An RC plane club, so cool. when we're he's gonna, not talking about Apollo, he's flying RC we're planes. We're going to hang
2: one at your wedding.
5: I'm
3: going to hang one at my wedding.
2: Because <laughs> nice. it's really scale.
5: It's really cool. Yeah.
4: <laughs> that's cool.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of fun, too. I'd love to get into RC. So that, that's actually how I got into flying, was I started with there was radio-controlled planes and just, just all of a sudden found airplanes I could actually sit in. But, you know, they have scale models now. They're like half scale right i was like oh my gosh yes i I just saw one i was i saw like a decathlon it looked like some little kid could get in there and fly it right and when when he
3: first saw bob's glass air, he said wow i could you know i could fly that with my
5: rc controller
2: (laughs) wow the um and then now do you still build these are you still into uh
5: no I'm, i'm getting a little old so now you can buy them uh Prefabricated, you just have to assemble the the system in it. Put you know, put the motor in, the radio, and the servos. But um, uh, most of them nowadays come cheaper, already built. That's 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 an amazing fact, you know. You
2: Uh, know, a lot of pilots get into radio-controlled airplanes. It seems either afterwards or before they're flying. Is that an expensive hobby? I don't know much about the costs. I mean, I'm sure. Well, let's see. If you
5: if you 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 could you could get in there for as little as. Three four hundred bucks, and you could spend as much as twelve thousand, so you can pick any range in there that suits your tastes and your wallet to to dive into this thing on uh, the equipment, the servos and the radios and the transmitters are really very inexpensive these days since they're so readily available you know
2: they're so cheap the components are so cheap to make, so it's not that bad, you know. Now you said you crash a lot in the beginning, so I guess some people can help you fly them.
5: Yeah, we have uh, we have instructors uh, uh, that teach, and we plug right into your transmitter, and so we can take it over on a moment's notice. The two of us fly together, and I only turn it over to you when I when I think you're you know gonna
2: fly it. Cool, it's like dual controls in like an airplane. Yes, it is. Awesome. Wow, very cool. Oh, that's wow! This is neat. I tell you, i, I just I'm, I have like a million more questions I can ask you. We can go on for hours and hours, but uh, I know we have to. Uh, so we'll have to wrap this up uh, fairly quickly here. But uh, Rick, do you have any questions anymore?
4: Uh, no, I mean I, I. think it's. I love hearing about all this stuff because as a, you know, as a kid watching a lot of it, it was just, you know, well, one, it became a thing like, well, this is just what we we do as a country. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we put people in space and we fly around there. And, um, you know, when, when, when it ended, uh, you know, it, that was hard. The shuttle was cool, challenges yep. along the way. Yep. Now the shuttle's ending. And I know there's a lot of us who are, you know, wishing that the priorities could be such that the, yeah. you know, there could continue to be humans uh, working. In, you know, and they're, they're still up there, but not in the same way and not with government support in the same way. So it's fun to hear about the days when you guys were inventing it.
5: Yeah, and most of most of the crew uh, that flew are still alive. You know, I'm amazed myself that I'm still here. uh, But (laughs) he's uh,
3: only 80 years young.
5: (laughs) (laughs) But most of them are still around, and that's just amazing. uh, Because I didn't want to see anything happen to them. uh, Kind of the stress, you know.
4: Right. No. In a way, good. good. It says a lot about how ready they were to do that mission. As hard. Yeah, and,
5: and and it shows you that they were all in shape too. Oh yeah. For sure. and that showed you that that must do something because there was an awful lot of stress for 10 years there on this yeah. program and uh everybody seems to we all were born around 1930 31 29 mm-hmm. somewhere in there or many of us were not all uh and uh, they're still still around thank God yeah. I really appreciate having them here with us
2: <laughs> yeah no, we appreciate you being here and telling these stories. I mean, how, how would they be able to find this information out unless you, you told us? Do you have this written down, I hope, somewhere? And
5: Yeah, and I uh, I think I have the oldest PowerPoint presentation in Microsoft history because I started this back when I left the program 40 years ago, and I still got some slides from that. It's 175
3: uh, slides. But, we watched uh, half of that last night. But you can,
5: you can... <laughs> I'll tell you what you do. You just Google NASA Apollo, and then anything you want to ask. Put in any adjective or verb, uh-huh. and there will be plenty of people who have written well on, right. on this stuff. So, so if you're curious about, no matter the smallest question, like, you know, how, what did you drink? And right. just do Apollo, or do NASA Apollo, and then what did you drink? And you'll, you'll get your answer right away. It's, it, it's all out there. Wow, cool.
3: Definitely. All right. I don't well, if, go ahead. I was just going to say it sounds like we're running out of time here. I wanted to ask uh, Grandpa real quick if he had any funny, uh, fun stories he'd like to share about the moments in Apollo. Something an astronaut may have said or done that you feel comfortable sharing.
5: <laughs> um, 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 um uh, Once at MIT, they had brought their uh, space suits along to look through the sextant, uh, space the, the space sextant from the roof of uh, Draper Lab at the Star. And uh, we left the, um, uh, the, the, they brought the spacesuit in and they laid it on the floor of uh, the lab. And it was indoors. We were up on the roof. And uh, some guy came up to me and he said, there's somebody's dead on the third floor. (laughs) I said, said, what do you look like? He said, you know, you look like me. I said, yeah, that's, that's your reflection. (laughs) That's funny. Wow.
2: That's great.
4: Cool. Thanks a lot for, uh, we really just love hearing these stories and we probably, probably should uh, consider another way to have you back and talk more.
5: Yeah, whenever, you know.
3: Well, he's always uh, doing presentations around the um, Metro Detroit area, and I'm sure maybe we can get a little, like, online video done for him someday.
2: Maybe oh. if uh, people have questions, they could send them to Victoria. Maybe you could pass some of those along.
3: That is fine. Well, Feel free to email me, and we can um, maybe answer a few in the next, you know, few uh, Stuck mic episodes.
5: Yeah, that'd be awesome.
4: Very cool. Well, thanks for being here.
5: Yeah, no, you're, very thanks so much. you're very welcome. You're very welcome. You and your parents paid for it. <laughs> so I'm eternally grateful that you did <laughs>
4: Well, we were into it at the time So we were glad to do it Okay, thank, thank you. you
1: Thanks. Well, I just want—I really want to uh, thank you, Harlan For coming on the show today It's been really cool hearing the stories That, uh, you know, and your experiences uh, Victoria, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you
3: All my contact information is available on my blog At toriaflies.blogspot.com
2: Wonderful, Carl Uh, You can find me at expertaviator.com and find links to my Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube channel.
1: Fantastic. My friend Rick.
4: Rotationspeed.com, R Felty on Twitter, and RD Felty on YouTube.
1: Great. And I'm Len Costa. You can find me at thepilotreport.com, also on Facebook. Twitter and uh, and YouTube, and from um, for the for the Stuck My avcast, you can reach the website. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Also, you can uh, download one of our mobile applications from the Apple i um, the Apple. Mobile store, and in addition to the Android mobile store, and that's a great way to, to have all of our information in the palm of your hand the Twitter feed, the episodes, everything right there. Check that out for sure. StuckMikeAvcast.com. And uh, for myself, Len Costa, Rick Felty Carl Valeri, and Victoria Newville, we all thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Joining us today on episode number 23. Clear skies and calm winds, everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Production.